Good morning, GAC family. It is good to be back from spring break. We are uh, tri-state families. We're back from spring break. Some of you, that's old news. You've been on spring break, UMA students, and you're back in it. I need a little vacation now from my vacation. It was uh, go, 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 but it was all fun with family and friends, and we're just thankful. Isn't it amazing the travel mercies that we get? All the traveling. I thought of all the students at Emmaus, all our families at GAC, all the students at Tri-State, all the miles, and yet he keeps getting us back together safely. He must have something for us to do. So very thankful to the Lord for his mercies in traveling. Well, this morning I have a fun but sobering passage, James chapter 5. Open your Bibles to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And the title is Help is on the Way. Have you heard the new Toby Mac song? Help is on the way. I won't even dare to sing it because you'll say help and you'll leave. Help is not on the way when I'm singing. It's all right. Help is on the way. Let me read this passage to you. I think you'll understand what I'm talking about. There was another sermon I heard this week, and the, the title for that message was great as well. I always have trouble deciding what the title should be, but... The patience of Job. The patience of Job would be very applicable here as well. Hope is on the way. Look at chapter 5 of James, verse 1 and following. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. What a vivid picture that is. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the rate rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, of the patience of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon told the following story about this patient endurance in the face of suffering and trials. A young man who desired to go to India as a missionary was called by the London Missionary Society to meet with the, the board member, Mr. Wilkes, of the society. 
He was appointed to consider this young man's fitness for the post of missionary. He wrote to the young man and he told him, I want you there very early in the morning. Meet me at 6 a.m. the next morning. Although the applicant lived quite a few miles away, he was there at the house promptly, punctually at 6 a.m. and was ushered into the drawing room to wait for Mr. Wilkes. He waited and he waited and he waited wonderingly, but patiently. Finally, Mr. Wilkes entered the room about mid-morning without apology. Mr. Wilkes began, well, young man, so I hear you want to be a missionary. Uh, yes, sir, I, I do. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, I certainly do, sir. And do you have an education? Yes, sir, a little. Well, let's test that. Spell for me, cat. The young man looked confused and hardly knew how to answer such a ridiculous question. His mind evidently halted somewhere between annoyance and submission, and in a moment he replied steadily, C-A-T, cat. Very good, said Mr. Wilkes. Now spell dog. Okay, the youthful Job was stunned, but he replied, D-O-G, dog. Well, that's right. I see that you're doing very well in your spelling. Now for your arithmetic. How about two times two? He patiently gave the right answer, replied, and was then dismissed. Later that afternoon, Mr. Wilkes was to meet with the board and give his recommendation. He said, I cordially, heartedly recommend this young man. His testimony and character are duly examined. I tried his self-denial. He was up very early in the morning. I tried his patience. I kept him waiting and waiting. I tried his humility and his temper by insulting his intelligence. He will do just fine. In verse 7 of our passage, you find the main exhortation, the main theme of this section, verses 1 through 12. Be patient. Be patient. Be long-suffering, in other words. For James, if one would pass the test, if they would be joyful in the midst of trials, if they would be pleasing to God, they would patiently endure as they wait for the Lord to return, especially in the face of resistance. So the key idea in verses 1 through 12 is this. It's in verse 7. You see it in verse 7. Therefore, brothers, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, also, it captures it again. You be patient. And he adds, establish your hearts. Or one, one brother said, put some steel in your backbone. Or verse 11 calls them to the patience of Job. That's what we're called to today. I guarantee resistance is coming. Suffering is coming. It's time to keep our eyes on his coming. Father, we ask for your help now as we dig into this precious word from you. Lord, we see a denunciation of the wicked in our text. Why would you have us see that? We also see a call to the believer here to be patient. Lord, help us to have a sense of urgency. Help us, help us to have a sense of expectation. Help us to live our lives in light of your soon return. Give us a healthy balance in the way we live. We ask for you to wake up our young people and ourselves as adults to live rightly, knowing that the judge, the king, is soon to walk in the door. We pray that you'd work in our hearts now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our Bible interpretation class at Tri-State, and you're going to hear this at Emmaus too, and you're going to hear it from this pulpit, 
the key to good Bible study is context, context, context. I guess the key to good French cooking is butter, butter, butter. The key to real estate is location, location, location. But we're talking about Bible study here. Butter is good. But context, context, context. You'll notice the word therefore in verse 7. You'll see therefore. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. He says, be patient, therefore, as he starts verse 7. What is therefore? Therefore. Man, you guys are good. Well, his encouragement to be patient, to patiently endure in verse 7, it arises out of the context of verses 1 through 6, where we read of persecution, of oppression by the wicked rich. These are unbelieving rich. And so this is a call to patience in verses 7 through 12, and it's based on the condemnation of the wicked back in verses 1 through 6 that we just read. The exhortation to patience is what we need to focus on today. The exhortation is patience. The context is suffering. I'm going to go back again. I'm just coming back from spring break, and I'm not quite with it. Now, here's what's going on in verses 1 through 6. You've got the unbelieving Jewish landlords. For the most part, they're unbelieving, and they're not just misusing their wealth, they're mistreating their workers. Many of these workers in James' church daily have to face this persecution, this resistance, this oppression, this maligning, this holding back of wages. And so the backdrop, again, is that persecution, it's exploitation, it's fraud, it's oppression. These wicked landlords, they are more interested in making a profit and gaining than they are in treating their workers well. They are not being condemned here because they're rich. you got to understand that. It's not that it's their wealth that's the problem, per se. It's not inherently wrong to have stuff. The problem is when your stuff has you, and you use it to the exclusion of God. Priorities are off here. And so they are condemned because they're misusing their riches, and they're abusing their workers. Theirs was the profit and the wealth at the disregard of God, at the disregard of the people of God, without any thought to put God's purposes in the equation and how they made their money and used their wealth. So oppression, persecution, injustice, these are the things that James was talking about back in chapter 1, remember? He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds because you know the testing of your faith, it produces perseverance. Let that perseverance have its full work so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so this is what trials look like. This is one form of trial, and there are many trials, but these are some of them that these believers are going through. If we would pass the test, if we would keep our equilibrium, if we would stay buoyant in the midst of persecution and a cancel culture, we would, if we would be joyful in the midst of persecution, we would be patiently, expectantly keeping our eyes on the fact that the king is about to return. The king is on his way. I'm so thankful for that. So what we have to do this morning is we have to get the proper mindset. We have to consider a couple of life-changing truths if we are going to be buoyant and full of joy in the midst of trials. First of all, he is going to call us to consider and reflect upon the destiny of the wicked, those that we might be tempted to envy. See, we also live in a culture where there is big tech and there's big wealth and there is a movement, a cancel culture in place. And it's usually in the hands of the wealthy and the powerful. How are we going to respond in the face of all this? Well, we have to have the right mindset. And so he's going to motivate us 
to be positive and not give in with envy and not join the culture by saying, let's think about this for a minute. Think about the wicked rich. Think about the destiny of the wicked who oppress you. Consider their inevitable destruction. This will motivate you not to envy them. This will motivate you to be patient and wait for another kingdom and a greater treasure. And then he's going to motivate them secondly in verses 7 on. And he's going to say, I want you to also keep this in mind. He's coming. He's coming soon. Now, it may not feel like it, but it is coming. In God's timeline, it's very near. Don't lose sight of that fact. And I don't hear Christians talking about it a lot, to be honest. I don't hear a lot of songs about his soon return. I wonder if we're too comfortable. So meditate on the wicked and their outcome, and then meditate on your great hope, the return of your king. So let's begin, first of all, by considering, verses 1 through 6, the destiny of the wicked. Think about their situation. Meditate on their destiny. Let that motivate you to patient endurance. You know, one would uh, wonder when they first read verses 1 through 6, why is James denouncing, why is he speaking to the unbelieving, the wicked, rich here? Why is he speaking to them? In the middle of a message to Christians, a letter written to a church, he is addressing them full on. Well, there are two reasons why we have verses 1 through 6. One old church father said it so well. He says, first of all, James has a regard, a concern for the faithful believers who are reading this letter. He wants them to hear of the miserable end of the rich so that they may not envy their fortune. And secondly, he wants them to know, he wants the believers listening in on this denunciation of the wicked rich to know that God is going to be their avenger, the avenger of the righteous. He's going to vindicate his people. He's coming soon, and so because he will hold them accountable, you can have a calm and resigned mind. You can actually move forward and serve your enemies because you know that God will deal with their sin. God is equitable. He is righteous. He'll do the right thing. Help and justice is on the way. So ponder the destiny of the wicked. Why should we patiently endure in the face of persecution? Verse 1, James announces their punishment at the day of the Lord's return. He announces the, the destiny in store for them. In, in the tones of an Old Testament prophet, he says in verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. See, their pleasure, their luxury, their consolation will soon be replaced by mourning and weeping. They will meet God and theirs will be shame and remorse and torment. Jesus speaks of a destruction in Mark 9 where the worm never dies and the flame is never quenched. Eternal judgment. That is their end. Do you envy that? Do you want that? Verses 2 through 3. James pronounces the wealth of the rich. He pronounces it worthless and temporal. He says, verses 2 through 3, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded. In other words, it's all transitory. It's fleeting. Here one moment, gone the next. All of it one day, all your stuff will be in someone else's garage sale or in a dump. You can't take it with you. There's a country song that says there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. And it's true, you, you can't take it with you. But they're putting their hope here. This is their treasure. This is their end-all, be-all. This is their priority, is wealth, comfort, luxury. And not only does their wealth fail to bring them long-lasting benefits, but its decay 
Look at, look at the language of verse 3. It's very decay is actually like evidence against them that speaks against them in the court and gives them a guilty verdict. Money speaks, and in this situation, their money is speaking an indictment in the courtroom of God against them. He says, your wealth, your riches, corrosion, the corrosion of it, the decay of it, it will be evidence, verse 3, against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. In other words, your wealth will eat your flesh like fire, very vivid language, and it means your stuff will feed the flames of judgment. That's what it's good for in the end. What good is it to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Why is this judgment upon the rich? Why is this pronounced upon them? Well, verse 4, number one, their materialistic accumulation of wealth. Their materialistic accumulation, their hoarding of wealth. Verse 4, you've laid up treasure in the last days. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with having stuff, unless your stuff has you. I've met godly men and women who have many resources, mammon, wealth, but you see how they use it. It's a servant for the king in their hands. They don't serve the wealth. It's about your priorities. It's about where your treasure is. As people see us spending our resources, they go, man, he loves Jesus. Or do they go, he's a believer? Wow, I wouldn't have thought. And so is your stuff being used for the king's purposes? What are your priorities? Do you have an idol in your things? That's what the problem is here. Hoarding wealth, and it's not being used for others. They're using it for themselves, but it's not aiding the poor. And in fact, he goes on to say, the way they use their wealth and use their workers is leading to their physical deaths and injury. So it's really a lack of love for God. They have another idol. And it's a lack of love for neighbor. Those are the two great commandments, and they're falling short. Love God, love your neighbor, and the way they're using their riches says the opposite. They don't love God or their neighbor. There's a wonderful old hymn, Be Thou My Vision. I heard that this week, and I thought this captures what our heart should be when it comes to our resources. This is what our anthem should be when it comes to our, our stuff. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. Priorities. O king of glory, my treasure, thou art. And then in addition to their materialistic self-indulgence, they're, as we said, they're defrauding their workers. They're, they're keeping back the wealth. They're failing to use the the resources they have to pay back those, to encourage those who work so hard for them out in the field. These are believers again, and they're being cheated. It's cheating that's supporting this lavish lifestyle for these people. Verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Then, in addition to cheating their workers, the wicked are condemned because self-indulgent actions are actually leading to death of the innocent. Look at verse 6. He says it. The righteous are harmed. Now, are they doing it directly? Are they directly murdering these people? I don't think so. But it's their choices, the way they're using their money, the way they're taking advantage of these people. It's neglect, and it's leading to harm and hazard. What comfort would there be for this believer under such an oppressive landlord? What comfort would there be? Because you would be tempted to say, you know, like Asaph in Psalm 73, I know the Lord is good, but I look at the wealthy, I look at the wicked, 
they prosper, they live easy lives, they live and die easy deaths, maybe I should bow the knee. Maybe I should go with the, the wicked in their path. Maybe I should go with the flow of the culture. What comfort is there? What motivation is there? What can I put in your back to steal it up so that you would keep the faith and run the race and be expectant of his return? Again, verse 4, consider their end. Verse 4 says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. You have the Lord of armies on your side. That's motivation. You have the king on your side. There are these landlords, but they're under his lordship. He's the Lord of armies. You can call out to him. Know that he is sympathetic and he knows and hears your cries. That is encouragement for you. Are you facing oppression? Are, are there things that you don't think will ever get righted in this life? You're taken advantage of? You're maligned? You're harmed? You're oppressed in some way? You're canceled? You lose a job because of your stance for Christ? You lose friends because of your stance for Christ? Who can you cry out to? Even when the, the courts of men will not hear your case, your plight, your cries, is there anyone who will hear you? What, what a simple passage, but what a comforting passage that is. What a comforting thought. He hears your cries. He will comfort you. He will bring justice eventually. It's coming. Keep the long view. Take the long view, brothers and sisters. Justice is on the horizon. The believer's cries reached heaven then, and they still do today. Hebrews 13 says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. What the rich think they can do in secret and without danger of prosecution is not hidden from the Lord of armies. And so here's the application for verses 1 through 6 quickly. It's, it would be this. It is, we have young people, and there are some back there you can pass the message on. Friends, family, grandmas, grandpas, moms and dads. Pass this on. The judgment of God is yet to come on the wicked. And that is a powerful incentive, a stimulus to persevere and not go with the flow of this wicked culture. Young people, trust me, we understand, right? Sin is pleasurable. We won't deny that. Sin is fun for a moment. It feels good. But eventually, you will discover, like Asaph did in Psalm 73, that the wicked are standing on slippery places. Their day is for a moment. Their treasures are fleeting. Eventually, they will be held accountable. See, this is what Asaph, the first time I ever heard a sermon on Psalm 73 was from Dr. Catron, Mr. Catron at Emmaus. He was my Bible teacher. And as he preached this, it was in the face of cancer. And he knew he only had months, a year to live. And he preached this for his students to hear. He said, you might be tempted to go with the flow of the culture. You see the wicked around me, they're prospering. I'm a righteous man. I've served the Lord. I'm dying of cancer. You might be tempted to think, well, maybe it would be easier to just go with the wicked. The world seems to prosper, seems to have health, ease, prosperity. What's to keep me strong and patient and running the race? Verse 4, the meager wages of the oppressed believers are portrayed as crying out against the the, the wicked, and we know God will eventually make things right. Listen to just these verses of Psalm 73. Take this to heart. If you're tempted to give in, verse 18 and following says, truly, this is Asaph speaking, he's finally come to the realization as he comes into the temple, you know, I, I, was, I was stumbling, I was tempted to, to envy the wicked, but now I see from God's perspective their future. 
verse 18, picks up this understanding. Truly, you set them on slippery places, the wicked. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. They'll be swept away utterly by terrors. He jumps ahead and he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? In other words, you are my portion. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my treasure forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He finally got it. That's the perspective we need in this world right now. Learn this now. Patiently wait for the Lord's return. Stand firm. Follow Christ. Don't envy the wicked. Their path ends in destruction. But the reason that there will be vindication for the righteous, the reason the believer will receive deliverance and the wicked will receive what they deserve is because the next point, verses 7 on, says, because the king's coming. The king will return and he will make things right. He will establish justice. He will vindicate you and he will deliver you. And we need to keep this at the forefront of our minds. We need to remember this. The king is coming, and he's coming soon. Now, what is this return of the king that verse 7 speaks of? Be patient. The Lord Jesus is coming. This may be a reference to the rapture, the any moment return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Others have argued that it, it speaks of his second coming to vindicate his people, to establish his throne to put down his enemies, to set up his eternal kingdom. Now, both of these truths, the rapture and the second coming, are used in the New Testament as incentives towards this patient endurance. Now, we read of his rapture, of his any moment returning our rapture to be caught up with the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 and following. And Paul will say at the very end of this, I want you to remind each other of this truth that I'm about to share with you encourage each other with these words. I mean, let's think of them. This could certainly encourage you to patient endurance in the face of resistance. He encourages them, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, our loved ones in Christ who have died. We won't precede them. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So my dad will rise from the dead first. And then we who are still alive, if he were to come today, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Does that encourage you? Amen. We should applaud right here. I think so. Go for it. Hallelujah, right? Brethren can do that. Anybody can do that. If you're God's people, this should excite you a little bit. The king's coming, and he could come at any moment. He could come, my dream would be, right now, it'd be pretty sweet. Right now, to leave my shoes here at the pulpit, I'd be okay with that. For the believer in the midst of suffering, these are words of encouragement. His soon return. It's imminent. Now, what is not any second imminent would be on God's timeline, although near, not necessarily imminent, would be the second coming of Christ when he returns as king, and he puts down his enemies, and he vindicates his people, and he establishes his kingdom once and for all. This, too, is a great incentive for the believer, the second coming of Christ, when he comes to reign and vindicate his people. And that needs to be a mainstay in our preaching as well. 
It, it will keep us steadfast in the face of suffering. Patiently endure, stand firm. The king is going to come soon, and he's going to establish his kingdom. All other kingdoms will be put down. He'll make everything right. Think for a moment about who is issuing this command. Think about who's writing this for a second. This is kind of an incredible thought to me. Who is saying this in verse 7? Be patient until the coming of the Lord. It's James. He was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. He had been with Jesus at Jesus' ascension. As he says goodbye to his Lord, as his Lord leaves him, as he's caught up, Jesus is caught up in the clouds, and he's taken. He watches his brother, his Lord, go into the heavens. And an angel in Acts chapter 1, verse 10, says to James and the other disciples standing by, Men of Galilee, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come again the same way you saw him go into heaven. He will return again bodily. He will return again here. In light of that event, can you imagine the longing and the expectation in James' heart to see his Lord, to see him return again, especially in a situation like this, where he loves these fellow Christians and they're being oppressed by arrogant, wicked landlords. The early church just oozed with eagerness and expectation for the Lord's return. If you count it, it's something like 300 references, 300 references, in the New Testament, to the return of Christ, to his rapture, to his second coming, the king's coming again, scripture oozes with expectation of his coming. It's no wonder that they ached, though, right? That they longed for Jesus' return, especially in light of verses 1 through 6, where we just get one little example of how the early church was kicked around like a soccer ball. No wonder they were so eager for his return. And if you look at those ancient songs they sang, even so, come Lord Jesus, if you look at your old church history books and your old hymnals, you see song after song about the return of Christ. They longed to cross over Jordan. They longed for that day when the Lord would return. It's more of a question, uh, maybe a little bit of an observation, but I recently heard a preacher claim that the hymns of, of modern song very seldom reference the return of Christ to rapture or to come and set up his kingdom. It's a neglected theme. What do you think? I'd love to have that discussion. I did do a little searching, and, and I, I do find in modern song, songs about his return. Help is on the way, Toby Mac. One I really like is Jordan Felice. Uh, is that right, Felice? Uh, Jesus is coming back. But it's few and far between, my observation. I don't want to get dogmatic. But it, I wonder if it's because the neglect of the theme, I wonder if it's because we are so comfortable here that the things of this world, things that aren't bad, but the things of this world, I wonder if we just don't want to leave them behind. I think it's because of a lack of perspective. If we knew it was coming, we would hold very loosely to the things of this world, wouldn't we? In the face of suffering, the believer then and now is tempted, though, to a number of things. To, under pressure, to fight with each other. We're tempted to doubt God's promises. Is he really coming? Envy, the wicked, we're tempted with that. Seek vengeance against those who take advantage of us. We're tempted with that. And so we do need this call in verse 7. Be patient, brothers, until his coming. Be patient until his coming. Keep your head up. Help is on the way. It is not a passive patience that he's calling for here. It's not a passive patience. It's a positive and expectant patience filled with joy, a sense that it will happen soon. The word there in verse 7, wait until he comes, until is a, is a Greek term that is just, it's, it has a pregnant sense, a pregnant sense. 
The command is to positively and expectedly wait. The king will soon come. And he gives illustrations of what this patience should look like. In our lives, he gives an illustration. The farmer, in verse 7. He cites the farmer who must patiently wait for the coming of the harvest. He says, be patient, because just like the farmer who, who waits for the earth to produce its precious fruit on which his livelihood depends, the farmer waits upon those important rains, the early and the late, so you must wait for the return of the Lord with that kind of expectant patience. The, the early and the late rains. The late autumn rains brought about the germination of the seed. It softened the soil, prepped the ground. The early spring rains, the ones that brought about the final harvest, they were essential. They fine-tuned the harvest. And so in verse 8, he makes the connection. You also be patient, like the farmer. Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's soon. As the farmer waits patiently through the process, as he waits patiently for the seed to sprout and the crops to mature, so we must expectantly wait for his soon return. It's near. It's soon. Is it, though? Can't you hear the naysayer of our day saying, New Testament writers, uh, they were wrong. I mean, James and the rest of them thought he, he's coming soon. That was 2,000 years ago. Imminent? Any moment? But this is nothing new, is it? I mean, haven't we heard this before? Didn't they hear it back in the day of the apostles in James' day? First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 3 mentions it. He, he talks about the naysayers. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on the same ever since the beginning of creation. Jump ahead to verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will be, it will come like the thief in the night. The apostles, they knew Christ would return soon. They weren't claiming to know exactly when. They weren't even saying it will definitely happen in our lifetime. They said it was near. And near, in a sense, is a, a relative term, right? Peter says that God's perspective on time is different from ours. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. It's the illustration of the mayfly. Have you ever seen a mayfly? They last for one day. That's the time span, the lifespan of a mayfly. Uh, they last one day, but suppose that one of these mayflies is hovering over the pond on a spring day, and if he could observe a tadpole in the, in the pond below, the offspring of a frog, when the mayfly was, you know, middle-aged, halfway through the day, he wouldn't be able to see any change in that tadpole, and he could not possibly conceive of the fact that that tadpole becoming a frog was near. So it is in the mayfly existence of Christ's calendar. Our fleeting, ephemeral, transient, passing lifespan does not negate, doesn't cancel out the fact that his coming is near. His second coming is soon. His his rapture for the church is any second. It's coming. It's, it's like the child. It's, it's so relative, right? The child in October, for them, Christmas is an eternity away. For the aged grandpa who has been through many snows and many winters, 
October, it, it might as well be Christmas. It's going to go like that. And so from the perspective of the divine, unbeginning, unending lifespan of the great I am, he says, it is near. It is soon. Are you ready? And check my logic, but his return is near to us than it was in the day of the apostles. It could be in the next 10 years. It could be in the next 10 minutes. It could be in the next 10 seconds. And you're thinking, hurry up, this guy's going over. Lord, come soon. <laughs> Let me wrap this up. Verse 8, again, he says, with this in mind, establish your hearts. He says, not only do I want you to patiently endure as you wait, but I want you to patiently endure, verse 9, with each other. Each other. Don't grumble at each other, guys. He says, don't judge one another because the judge is at the door. Christ will hold us accountable for how we treat each other in this time of trial. He says, be patient with one another. Don't bite and devour one another. This is such a timely warning because here's the thing. A year ago, I would never have conceived of churches that I knew dividing and splitting over the mask issue or political issues. I just, I couldn't conceive of the people I knew, there's no way they'll split over masks. And yet I'm seeing churches splitting, dividing, believers not talking to each other over the mask issue, or politics, which are all important things. But I don't think the Lord Jesus in his high priestly prayer would be pleased as he prays for the unity of the church. May we draw together around the gospel and essentials. May we stand for truth, unity with truth, but let's not lose sight of unity. He wants us to love each other well as we patiently wait for the Lord. And so he says, look at the prophets, how they endured. And let me give you an assignment. Read Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 to 38. And look at the perseverance that the prophets went through as they spoke the word of God. Listen to their suffering. Make these guys your heroes. This would be a great reading today as a family for lunch. And then he says, and have the patience of Job. Listen, if there's anyone who is an example for us, in steadfastness and patient waiting in the midst of trial, it would be Job, who does not curse God, but blesses God in the trial. And verse 11 says that there was a purpose in this. God was gracious and had a purpose in Job's suffering. Remember that, that your trials are like servants, in the hands of God, being used for your good and his glory. Remember that. Let's patiently wait for his return. Father, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that he's a returning savior. I remember my professor at Trinity saying that he was able to visit China and preach to an underground church who had never heard that Christ was coming again. And to think of their crying and their joy and their leaping and their celebration to hear the king is coming, Help us to capture that sense of joy, to remember that Christ is coming soon. Help us to meditate on the end of the wicked. There's his destruction. There's nothing to envy there. Help us to build our treasures here on earth and to treasure each other well and treat each other well in the meantime. Help us to, like verse 12 says, to be full of integrity as we speak to each other. Let our yes be yes, our no be no. Let us be marked by integrity in our speech and our dealings with one another. Help us not to fold under the pressure, but to stand strong, loving you and loving each other well as we wait for the soon return of the King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.